Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Join me today in a conversation with Lloyd Michener, Professor, Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at Duke University in North Carolina. Lloyd, your LinkedIn profile says that Lloyd is deeply engaged in redesigning healthcare to improve community health outcomes. Now, the question I have for you is, was there a particular event that led to your interest in healthcare? What really got me going was working as a family physician in Durham, North Carolina at Duke. And I had very large profile patients and seeing many people and then generations, I was on third generations, coming in with the same set of problems and realizing that all of us in primary care could keep seeing patients day in and day out and would, and that's our job, but it was time to do something different or would be seeing the same patterns of illness continue for generations yet to come. And that sense that we had to do things differently actually got me to talking to people, talking to our health department, talking to community groups about what would it take to actually keep people healthy rather than waiting until they're sick and seeing what we could do then. So can you remember a particular epiphany, a particular moment, a particular patient? Um, you know, you don't need to tell me their name and their details, but in broad terms, what was it, what was it that did it? It would it'd be a child who with asthma, who kept getting worse, and we kept giving her more and more medications, and, and realizing there wasn't just her, I was seeing child after child, and often their parents, and I would give them more medicines, I talked about how to try to make their, where they lived safe, and it just seemed not to be working. And then realizing that, and I was seeing more of this, asthma rates were going up, and we were working with Medicaid, the program in the United States and North Carolina that takes care of folks who are, are poor, and realizing that there was a growing problem in our entire city and the state, and that we didn't have enough doctors, we didn't have enough medicines for that matter, uh, in order to take care of everybody who was starting to get sick, and we needed to change. So it was not so much a person, but it was a group of people that I realized we just weren't, we're taking care of them too late. So you are talking about a global problem because I recognize everything you're saying. As a family physician in Australia, I recognize exactly the patient. I recognize the circumstances. And I recognize that, you know, you throw everything at them, including the kitchen sink, and yet it doesn't seem to be working. So what the bright idea that I had at that point, or it seemed bright, was to start talking with all the physicians because I thought part of the problem was that Patients were coming to see me. They're seeing specialists at Duke in the community, and we're all giving them different instructions. So my bright idea is maybe we could all agree on a common, we now call pathway for taking care of asthma. So we worked with the state. We we got every primary care doctor, family physician, Duke specialist, pulmonologist, dermatologist, and in the community all agree on a common asthma pathway. And I thought, oh, we got it now. It, we're going to start being able to make a difference. We saw no difference in rates of illness or rates of emergency room use. So we we kept working. We talked to the parents, of course, and they said, well, you're yes, you may be making things more uniform, but they're still too complicated. So we tried to simplify the instructions. We got our hospital to make uh, magnets with instructions. And that didn't work either. And it wasn't it's just scratching my head going, this makes no sense, when I realized we had not included the school nurses. 
And where do kids spend so much time? So we included the school nurses in that discussion. And it was like a light switch went on. All of a sudden, the emergency room rates dropped enough that the emergency room called me to say, what have you done? Because we're, our rates are down. We're not seeing these kids with asthma anymore. We ended up reducing rates of asthma visits to the emergency room by almost 70%. And we expanded that across the state, still at 68%. So it made a huge difference. And what I learned from that is, one, I didn't know what to do. Doctors tend to see things as medical. And that what we need to do is partner with our parents and the families and the community members. And with them, we could design interventions that worked. So what was it that the, or the, the school nurses were doing that made a difference? They were reinforcing the messages with the kids. Um, and often the kids were getting sick at school and the nurses didn't know about these simplified protocols. So they were calling mom, who was kind of taking time off from work to bring them into the the hospital or our offices. So it's a chain and everybody had a role. If you leave one person out of the chain, the chain's not strong. It, it breaks. So we realized we had to include, I would add, by the way, that after that, we realized that many of these kids, kids lived in housing projects in houses, apartments that were full of mold and and mildew, and we had to clean the mold and mildew out of those apartment complexes. And that's become a national program now about identifying groups of people who, where they live and discovering that often, rather than giving them medicines, we need to help clean up where they live. And, and that, that program around uh, healthy housing has now scaled up across the country. And just, I think the city of Boston is now about an 80% reduction in asthma admissions because the doctors are saying, yes, we're going to take care of your asthma, but we're also going to help identify whether where you live is a problem and work with the housing authorities, health department to make sure that where you live is safe. This is, this is John Snow 101. It is. It's amazingly embarrassing. It's, we call it going upstream. It's saying, let's look at the pattern of illness. Of course, we have to take care of people when they're sick, but let's see if we can identify the pattern. Um, but the way, it, what we found out is with all the electronic health record data, we can, we can identify clusters of illness, but the physicians are rarely able to identify the reason it's the people who live in that cluster who can point out the reason. So whether it's obesity or whether it's diabetes or hypertension, it's the folks who live there point out that they can't, folks can't um, eat healthy vegetables because there's no grocery store to buy healthy vegetables at. They're the ones who point that out. Uh, physicians think the problem is we just need to tell them, we'll give them better instructions on how to eat. Yeah, I mean, obesity is a real problem, isn't it? And a global problem. We're talking 60, 80% uh, rates of overweight and obesity across the world. And we're going to be hitting close to 80% by 2030. It's, it's, it's frightening. It, yet it's a very complex issue, isn't it? It's, you're not fat because you don't know what you're eating. It's fat for a whole load of reasons. And it's not something that physicians can fix alone. We don't have no drug. I don't think we're ever rule for obesity. What we can do, though, is partner with our communities and help build healthy communities. And that may be having places that where it's safe to walk, where there's sidewalks, parks where people can get out. It's hard to tell people they ought to increase their exercise if it's hard for them to get out and if there's no place for them to walk or exercise. So it's building a resilience within the community or the ability, and, and physicians have a key role in supporting that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk because I trained in the National Health Service in the UK where in the 1980s, where this was our bread and butter. We worked with the community. We did home visits. 
all of that was jettisoned in time and very much it became an office-based appointment style. It, you know, it worked for, um, dare I say, white middle-class people who were attending a doctor. It did not work for many other people and many other social classes where, as, as we discovered, you, you, almost had to, you almost had to see how they lived to understand why they were sick. Yes. And I remember, because I worked with the, the UK and looking at some of their data, and that the powers, the UK was way ahead of the United States in looking at the data, where we may have actually been a little slower, but a little closer to the mark, is realizing that the solution lay not in the GP's hands, but in the partnership between the GP and the community. So where we're going with in the States in particular is around multi-sector partnerships, but it's not just the, the physician, the hospital, and the community in general. It's specifically members of those communities that have the higher rates of disease, and it's the schools, and it's transportation, and it's the banks and the businesses so that we have a coalition that is sustained, and we don't say it's something that the medical community can or should or do alone. Like we can't. We can't do it alone. I recognize that. It resonates with all of us who, who are across the world who face the same issues. So where is the hope? Where is the hope for us? I cannot see a system where increasingly, you know, clinicians are becoming part of the community. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm seeing more of the telehealth and the moving away from the co-face of the patient and more into our little cocoon. I'm not sure I would agree. I think it's more complex. So the telehealth is a way if to connect with folks who are far from you. So in New Mexico, uh, it's a good way to connect with communities that are far flung, as, and as, certainly in Australia with areas that are very rural where it's hard to get a clinician out. But it's also about listening to the community about what their concerns or issues are. And this is a big change. And it's using data to identify those groups within communities who are most severely affected. And it's, it's our ability to use electronic health record data to really identify clusters. It's not a whole community. It'll people, it turns out it's almost always people in a building that has mold, or it's people in a, a few blocks who have problems with transportation or safe walking. It's that targeted, precise identification of a group of people that you need to reach out to and not tell them what to do, not to instruct them, but to help problem solve about what they can do and how you can support them in dealing with that cluster that you identified. Data is a two-edged sword though, isn't it? Because in fact, the worry is that this data is being misused by various people, organizations, privacy is being undermined. And you know, if you, if, if in, a fu- in future, uh, our children or grandchildren end up in losing their jobs because they recognize that there is something about the way they live and their genetic makeup, et cetera, which puts them at higher risk for insurance companies and government. So, you know, these people don't need to be in work or they don't need to be uh, have their mortgages uh, approved or whatever. Isn't it a real worry for us? It, oh, it's an absolute worry. But also, at least in the healthcare fields, I hope there's a, at least a potential solution. We have a saying that I'm sure you've heard of nothing about me without me. So when we identify clusters, we share that with the community to make sure that we're correct, that we may actually have misidentified the data. We have may, we have made it identified a cluster that the community don't think it's real. Or most of all, we may be jumping to the wrong conclusions. 
that sharing with the data and problem solving around it is key to the trust and making sure you do no damage, do no harm. But again, I think that's part of our our roles as clinicians is sharing the data and asking folks to help us understand it and verify it and then to act on it so we don't act on it alone. I'm reminded of a, a very interesting story from the BMJ some years ago. They were trying to work out why Bangladeshi men in certain parts of London had such poorly controlled diabetes, despite the fact that a huge number of resources were going into this. And somebody, some clever spark thought, why don't we talk to the men and find out what they, what they believe about their diabetes? And what they believed was being fat and peeing a lot is actually very good for your health. This was a cultural thing. And suddenly the penny dropped and they thought, aha, that's why. That's why we've got uncontrolled diabetes in that part of London, in that community. And the extraordinary thing was it was this, you know, conversation with the community. And yet it's not the kind of NHMRC or NIH funded project that's going to get you there. Well, though in the United States, this process, we call it community engagement of listening, is actually understood by the National Institutes of Health as a key element of doing research with communities. That you need to you need to share your understanding, but also listen back. We've seen it with our tribal communities, with our minority communities, that their health belief model is often very different of ours. And we need to act in concert with them so that our messaging fits with their norms in ways that, and with their ideas of what health is. So you are clearly an optimist, which is fantastic because we need, we need optimists. So what is the most exciting thing on the horizon that you think will make a difference to outcomes? Well, the one we're working on, and we now have oh, several dozen foundations in most of the states in the United States, many of the big, most of the big cities working on, is teams around health. We call it multi-sector partnerships for health. In fact, we have a website, practicalplaybook.org that has been supported by the Development Foundation and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where we've been studying these clusters, these coalitions and what works and put, putting those stories online. This has gotten so much uh, interest, 60,000 hits, I think, 60,000 followers, hundreds of thousands of hits, that we did a book about how primary care and, and public health can work together in Oxford Press. And now we have another book just coming out in a few weeks on multi-sector partnerships. And what's the role of primary care? What's the role of healthcare systems? And we have key roles, especially around data and advocacy. But then what's the role of public health, of community organizations, of banks, of business coalitions, and then examples of how they come together and can really improve the health of communities? And we have examples of where that's well underway. And again, it's not because the doctors led the way forward. It's because we were part of the coalitions. And I am optimistic because I keep seeing it work. It's a reminder that medicine is really about service to people and that if we can, sh- if we share our understanding, our knowledge, but also defer to the knowledge and wisdom of the community, they can help find the solutions because ultimately it's their health. So yeah, I'm utterly optimistic. So what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? What I'm working on and, and starting to see happening is primary care physicians, family physicians, general practitioners, learning to not just be really good physicians in the office, but also partnering with their community, not to solve the problem, but to share the data and be voices and advocates for the health of their communities. And we are seeing that happen. The American Academy of Family Physicians has made it a 
huge part of our role in the United States, the American Academy of Pediatrics, but it's the hospitals and health systems are too. And what's been wonderful is as we've done this, we've been joined by literally hundreds of community organizations, over 700 at this point, saying, we welcome your help. Please don't tell us how to do it, but please join us in finding solutions that work for us. And that new book, uh, the Practical Playbook 2, will be out at the on May 1st. And we hope that folks, especially in the United States, but globally will find it useful and we look forward to learning from them. Wonderful. And uh, certainly we look very much look forward to the book and reading it and learning from you because these are, as far as I can tell, certainly not conversations that are happening as fluidly as they're happening in the way that you're describing them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's what I'm looking forward to is those discussions. You talked about taking the pump handle off. I think it's us getting back to our roots um, as scientists and as physicians and communities that we have to be good in the office. We have to be good partners as well. So last question, what one piece of advice would you offer medical students here in Australia to improve their prospect of their contributing in a selfless way to the, to the health of mankind? Uh, what we tell our students and our residents is uh, first, enjoy being a physician because it's, it's an honor and it's really fun. And second, well, no matter how good you are in the office, learn to partner and listen with your community because that's where you make the biggest difference. And that will sustain you through the days that come. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.